Good afternoon everyone or good morning or good evening wherever you are in the world. Welcome to our webinar discussion on reductions and removals. How do you integrate the two into a successful climate strategy? As usual, we can't promise you all the answers, but we can promise you some better questions and some examples of progress and ambition along the way. My name is Toby Webb, uh, founder of Innovation Forum. And in this webinar, we're trying to talk about how leading companies and others um, can start to go one step further in developing programs to actually remove carbon from the atmosphere. Um, because, of course, in the, in the complex world of accounting, it's still unclear about who can counter carbon removal and when. But that doesn't mean we have to just sit around doing nothing in the midst of a climate crisis. Um, until we get the, the right rules, which of course may then change. So we're really going to talk in the, over the next hour or so about the frameworks needed to incentivize the right action for brands, how do you balance emissions reductions and removals in, the, in an effective strategy through the lens of our speaker's experience. We can't speak for everybody, but we are going to cite some examples of reductions and removals programs, looking at some of the headline challenges uh, around calculating and claiming emissions, removals, reductions, and what are the opportunities here? As you know, any business challenge has to be framed as an opportunity. There's always an opportunity somewhere. And as we know in sourcing, particularly in agriculture, there are lots of opportunities for efficiency, uh, some of which we know about, some of which we don't. And part of the innovation process is to uncover those and to use them to help build the business case and fund these ongoing emissions reductions removal and removal programs. Let's do a quick round the room, uh, starting with you, Connor. I'm Connor, I'm the Global Climate Delivery Manager at Nestle based in Paris. Thank you. Tillman. Hello everybody, Tillman Silver. I'm leading the Thriving Nature Strategy at Barry Callebaut. Thank you. Hannah. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Hannah Berger. I'm a food and water senior scientist with the Nature Conservancy based in Manhattan, Kansas, the Little Apple. <laughs> the Little Apple, love it. Good. Everybody, uh, Guts Martin from Golden Agri Resources. I'm there, the Director for Sustainability and Strategic Projects. So let's just go back to you for a second, Connor, before we have some opening remarks from Hannah. Uh, Connor, you, you, we work a lot with Nestle on these sorts of things. Why are we doing this one today? What do you want out of it? What do I want out of it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I think what I want out of it is my role at Nestle is, is scaling this mountain that is net zero. And net zero is a long-term commit commitment, but we have short-term commitments that are quite short-term. We want to be 20% of the way to net zero already in 2025. That's three years time. So I think my main message here is that we, we can't wait, we can't delay action and wait until um, we have the perfect framework, the first perfect guidance, the perfect standards in every case. And um, we really want to, I think the biggest risk to us at Nestle is inaction. If we don't uh, invest in the things that we need to invest in today, we definitely won't achieve our 2025 target of a 20% reduction. And um, so, yeah, my message is uh, we really want to um, act and, and invest today, despite the uncertainty. Um, and it's great to have some of our suppliers on the call who we're trying to partner with in this kind of uncertainty space and really drive, uh, drive ahead with action. Um, and yeah, I think that's that's the, the main message. So despite uncertainty, let's act today. The biggest risk is in action. Um, how can we work together to try to push ahead? Um, another thing I wanted to point out would be our insetting strategy that we launched recently. So we really this is what we're trying to achieve through our insetting strategy is really setting out this framework of acting uh, acting today um, because we know we have to. Excellent. Well, on the theme of partnerships, let's uh, bring in Hannah first. TNC 
very famous for working with lots of large companies on these things. So what are your views, uh, Hannah, on how we get, how we get moving now uh, in this complex area? I'll start with a really high level overview of removals and reductions, what those mean. So ecosystems, including farms and ranches, are natural sources and sinks for greenhouse gases and particularly carbon. We call something natural climate solutions when it's a management practice that promotes the storage and reduces the loss of carbon. In agriculture, those practices could include diversified crop rotations, reduced tillage, cover crops. In grazing lands, that can be uh, intentional rotational grazing practices. Those kinds of practices create removals. They take carbon out of the atmosphere and they store it in the ecosystem. We also have reductions. Sometimes those are also called avoided emissions. When you think about reductions, it could be a practice like a farmer applying less nitrogen to their field, less nitrogen available in the soil for nitrous oxide production, nitrous oxides, an intense greenhouse gas. That would be something called a removal when a farmer applies less nitrogen fertilizer and it avoids that excess emission. There is a ton of excitement uh, for good reason from companies who source from these types of agricultural lands, because if we can incentivize those practices and we can start amplifying the amount of removals and reductions in agriculture, all of a sudden the greenhouse gas footprint associated with the supply chain, including companies shrinks. The trickiness comes in when we start contextualizing this kind of practices in the broader corporate greenhouse gas mitigation context and also the rules that guide them. So we've already had a question about greenhouse gas protocol, uh, the whole ecosystem of, of entities out there that are working to find ways to create rules. And again, the big challenge is that ecosystems are dynamic by nature. There are fluxes and there are sinks and ecosystems. They're non-equilibrium. Trying to put rigid, fixed guidelines on them can create challenges. And that's why I'm excited to be here this morning and to hear from everyone else, because it's been really energizing watching the industry converge around this problem of how do we create rules that are transparent, that are fair, that are legitimate for a system that is incredibly dynamic and hard to track. Thank you, Hannah. That was incredibly clear. Um, can you come back and do this every week, please? That was great. Sure. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Let's, we'll talk more about the, um, the the rules a bit later, because as we all, many of us know, we, we're lacking clarity. We, we're, we're told we're going to get some, but as Connor said, we need to crack on now and get some stuff done. So on that note, Connor, back to you. What does that mean in practice today? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, when we're looking in, at transforming our agricultural supply chains, we have to think holistically about that. So agricultural systems are quite complicated. It's not like we're burning some fossil fuels and some, some greenhouse gas emissions are going up the chimney and we want to stop that. In an agricultural production system, there's multiple sources and sinks, and we have to think about each of these when we design programs to move towards more climate-friendly practices. Um, so for us, it means very different things in different agricultural supply chains. So it means very different practices in the dairy supply chain than in a cocoa supply chain than in a palm oil supply chain. So at the moment, we're really looking at what these practices are that we want to promote in different supply chains in different parts of the world. And to do that, we're really trying to partner with some of our um, suppliers who have more context who really understand the, the situation on the ground and have more understanding of what are the right actions to take in specific contexts. So we're really trying to um, work with our suppliers, both in doing primary footprint assessments of, of our farming systems to really understand those emissions and those uh, removals happening in these production systems and understand what practices can reduce those emissions and enhance the carbon sequestration on these farms. Um, and yeah, it would be great to hear from one of our, our suppliers on the call of what that means uh, in their view. 
Thanks, yes, we'll turn to them in a minute, to Gertz and, and Tillman, to perhaps uh, talk about the detail of this. But do you see your role then, Connor, emerging as a, as a catalyst? I suppose it has to be, really. Um, but what does that actually mean in reality? Because we, we hear a lot of talk, um, rightfully so, from companies about what their role in doing that. But perhaps give us a bit more on what that could look like. Yeah, absolutely. So, so in 2020, we released our net zero roadmap in which we kind of set out very practically what are the specific interventions we're looking to do. And also, very importantly, making a financial commitment to co-finance some of these actions taking place in our supply chain. Um, following that, we've really tried to engage some of our key suppliers um, to really, um, yeah, as we said, leverage some of their expertise in terms of specific context, specific operating uh, management practices of these firms and what actions we can take. And um, we've then put out requests for proposals. So we've opened up to our suppliers to really submit ideas for projects within our sourcing regions. So that might be agroforestry. So planting additional um, shade trees in, in cocoa production systems that could be um, programs that improves, increase the productivity of, of dairy or plants kind of silver pasture, more trees on dairy farms. So quite, I think we have 40 or 50 different intervention types that we're uh, looking to roll out across different crops in different parts of the world with different suppliers. Um, and it's really trying to figure out those models, those co-financing models where we can both invest together with our suppliers to achieve our shared objectives on climate in our shared sourcing regions. Thank you. And, and I have to ask you about competitive collaboration because yeah, you and your competitors are all sourcing from the same places. So tell us a bit more about where you are now in collaboration there because there's lots of collaboration initiatives between the brands you know agreed targets and headlines which are great and now of course that's all happened only in the last few years so where are we now on on breaking down those barriers to collaboration to make sure the farmers aren't getting you know multiple requests with slightly different criteria i think there's good progress on collaboration on certain fronts but maybe not on others so i think there's good progress on collaboration when sectors are coming together, like the cocoa sector is coming together to agree very clear rules on how you should conduct farm footprint assessments on farm, what data you should collect and having a very standardized process there and how that data gets shared along the supply chain. And um, obviously that's hugely important because we don't want to send a request to Barry Calibut, which requests things that Nestle want, but it's very different to what their other customers want. We want to have a standardized approach. So everything that they create is, is suitable for all of their customers and they don't have to duplicate or chop and, chop and cut things in different ways for different customers. Um, the place where I don't think we've made that much progress and we need to make more progress is um, collaboration on investment to achieve large scale projects. It's, it's very challenging at the moment to sign contracts with multiple with our peers to do big scale projects um, I think that's that's just it's something it's, it's it, we can do sign contracts with our suppliers, but it's very hard to start making that a bigger project with multiple peers involved just because of legal pushback internally and, and things like that. But I think that's something that we're progressing on. But I don't think that nut has been cracked yet. Yeah, and there are some good emerging models there. Of course, we've seen great progress through RSPO, the Cocoa and Forest Initiative, and helping break down those barriers. So um, I guess at some point the lawyers will have to work out the way that this can be done in a way that suits both um, their billable hours and the regulators and, and the idea of pre-competitive collaboration. Well, that, that's good to hear. And thank you for the frank assessment. Uh, well, Tillman, turning to you then, talking of Coco, um, how does Connor's remarks reflect your experience? And perhaps you can give us some examples of what this is looking like now in action um, and any other views on, on how this area can evolve faster. Tillman. 
Sure, yeah. So for those, if, in case anybody doesn't know us and hasn't had the chance, as Toby, you put out to Google, um, so we're the largest cocoa sourcing and manufacturing company. So we do um, buy cocoa, so we really integrate it all the way to farm level and really interact directly with the farmers. But we also then have factories where we also work in. I think today the focus is really on on-farm. And, um, and I think there's a lot happening in the space, right? Just to say that I think the science-based targets have really made climate a mainstream topic. And not only that, with their focus on scope three, which is overlapping, right? So we, our scope three in Cocoa is also Nestle's scope three. So we have this overlapping scopes, which is really a great enabler for, for collective action, at least vertically between suppliers and, and, um, and customers such as Nestle. And I think Nestle has really, you know, is really... Um, leading the space right now, as as kind of you know pointed out with our RFPs, etc. So there's a lot of kind of um, a lot of um, uh, action happening right now. On our side, you know, also speaking about reductions and removals, for us, the biggest part of our emissions are happening on farm, and that's on the one hand side the land use change, so a big you know kind of historic liability from from you know conversion of forests to to cocoa landscapes that has happened and that is still a big part of our inventory and the other element is is opportunities for removals from agroforestry and we're both working on those two elements so on the on the reduction side it's a lot about a traceability knowing where it comes from right otherwise you cannot uh, make sure it's not coming from from forest so we are working with those extension farmers that i just mentioned to really map out individual plots and really walk around those plots and getting the polygons and getting them up into systems so we actually know which areas we are sourcing from. That's step one. And once we have that, we can start to actually monitor those through satellite imaging. So we're using Global Forest Watch, which provides an annual update of, of uh, deforestation in those countries. And we're using also more, more or we're, we're experimenting now with more kind of near real time, more, 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 um, more frequent updates on, on where deforestation is happening. So we get a real, a good picture for what's happening on the ground. And then the last step, obviously, you have to respond to those, right? So you need to go and actually engage with your suppliers if you notice that there is something, something happening. So you need to come up, you need to ask for clarification, you need to ask for remediation, etc. So those are the kind of the, 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 the items that we're working on, on the land use change um, part. And now with, you know, it's also partly becoming compliance topic with EU deforestation regulation, which I expect will have a very strong um, influence also in the land use change in that sense really be fully aligned with science-based target um, but also you know maybe quickly just to wrap up on the reduction i think it's that's a huge piece right it will take a long time smallholder farmers are very very integrated with local you know with other with other industries with the timber industry with you know local governance how well is the law made how big you know how well is it enforced etc so those is, are really kind of very challenging elements that need cross collaboration, not just within our industry, but then also with our industries and, and with other industries and with the public sector. So that's a huge, huge, and I think very pre-competitive space for all of us to be in. And where we also, you know, under the title of landscape, for example, we have a lot to do still. Um, also echoing a bit of what Connor had said there, there, there's a big, not just opportunity, but need for collaboration. It's a bit different when we talk about removals in agroforestry, because this is really on farmers, on farmland that we are sourcing from, again, since often since a very long time. So here we are, um, we are very ambitious. We're working um, very integrated in-house and uh, running our own nurseries because in some of those countries, right, it's really hard to get only good, you know, planting materials. Um, we're running our own nurseries, distribute them to the farmers, and then it's not just basically 
distributed and drop them, but we are, you know, working with training and also payment for ecosystem services. So you need to basically have that, all that follow through from the tree planting to make it actually a tree growing exercise, because only then you actually really remove um, from the atmosphere and you actually make sure that it's also permanently stored. So this is our, we kind of, um, we have now developed a full kind of uh, farmer journey where a farmer has really touch points over up to 10, 10 years to make sure that really agroforestry is a success in the long term. And again, for this, as for many others as a B2B, we're really, uh, for us, it's really important to work together with our customers, such as Nestle, and sometimes also with our peers. Yes, well, asking you about your peers, it seems fair to ask you the same question I asked Connor, really. What, wh where are the gaps in collaboration with your peer companies to enable this? What are different elements of competitiveness and pre-competitiveness, right? Connor alluded to this, to this agreement that we are just about to make in or working on, have started working on, that I'm very proud of, of in the cocoa industry that we're setting the rules in a, in a consistent way that we're making sure if we are talking about our footprint and our competitors talking about our footprint in the same way, maybe to Nestle, that it's comparing apples with apples. So this is super pre-competitive and I think we all need to be, move beyond discussing how have you calculated, how have we calculated, why is it a different value, right? This is not helping anybody and it's definitely not helping the environment. So that's something we're moving beyond, super pre-competitive. I think other elements such as land use change are so integrated again I, I talked how it's a, a systemic challenge land use change so you need to work if you want to really move the needle on land use change we have to work with our with our peers on other elements i know some think that's maybe some might think different but on agroforestry which again is really much in our kind of you know a, a land that we have with farmers that we have a very close collaboration it can also be a competitive edge for us right so now if we are better and faster and more you know professional and efficient in putting into ground a very highly impactful uh, agroforestry uh, program that might be a competitive edge right and that on that impact i actually i'm i'm also happy to compete with my peers and i think it's actually good for you know the environment and the society at large if you're competing a little bit but definitely not on you know what are the right rules and on, on topics like systemic challenges you can't compete but on agroforestry you might be able to compete of course some things you have to also coordinate but here's also a bit of an, an area where where we think you know we want to you know, we, we want to show that we are to the market and capitalize that we're actually doing a lot and we're, we believe that we're good in what we're doing. That's a really important point, isn't it? You know, collaboration doesn't cover everything and neither does pre-competitive or super pre-competitive. I like that term. And uh, competing to see who can have the most agroforestry in cocoa sounds like a really good competition to me. Uh, and I guess the, way, I guess the way you talk to farmers about this is not using any of the terminology we're using here, which sometimes we struggle to understand. It's more about... Um, do you want to hedge against climate change? Do you want to have an average lower temperature that, that will affect volatility of yield and so on? I imagine that's the language you use when you go and talk on farms to farmers. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, in fact, you know, farmers like that are often having a fairly, you know, necessarily they have a relatively short term perspective. So, so what we're doing needs to needs to basically work out from the economics from their side. So income diversification is a very important term, right? So when we're coming in and doing um, shade trees and agroforestry, there has to be a you know fairly immediate and, and very direct um, impact basically on their economics. Otherwise, you know they don't have an interest. Obviously, the PS system I think is an important um, one. So the, you know we really talk about cash payments here. So it's a direct you know additional income that can help the farmer as well. Um, so, but yes, and then of course there's a more long-term perspective of resilience versus climate change, etc. Um, soil productivity, but often right they're a bit less in convincing the farmer. They're a bit more long-term, right? And farmers often, again, necessarily so, um, have a relatively short-term um, 
um, time horizon. So it has to really work for the farmer in a, on a short term as well as, a, as for a long time. Yeah. Well, that diversification thing is so key, isn't it, Gertz? We've spoken about that many times, and I've just seen some great examples from um, Cotton Connect in Pakistan and India, you know, making the business case for flowers with cotton farmers, have flowers, get bees, get bees, make honey, uh, look at the price of honey. You know, some really quite, quite simple dynamics that can drive up incomes quite quickly are, are in play now, which is great. So, Gertz, moving over to Indonesia, um, from from and palm oil, I guess, largely from from cocoa. Well, what are your thoughts on all this? And if you have some examples to bring it to life, uh, I'd love to hear them, Gertz. Thanks, Toby. Um, maybe also just for everyone on the call who doesn't know us, um, so Golden Agri Resources, we are a large integrated uh, palm company. I think what might be interesting for you is we are in an interesting position because we are on the one hand side operating uh, more than 500,000 hectares of plantation, but we also have nearly 100,000 hectares of uh, conservation area within our concessions, uh, plus obviously the supply chain. So, so you, we have options to play all play uh, which makes, gives us a, a broader range of things we can do. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think on the supply chain, I agree with many things what uh, Tillman already said. I think we face a similar challenge, um, uh, scope free. I think everything on our side is focusing on making the supply chain deforestation free. So we get the historic land use change backpack uh, emission down uh, in, in over the next um, uh, 15 years. Um, I think, again, also, you know, collective action on how do we manage companies who have met our requirements, uh, uh, remediation, um, uh, compensation actions. I think, I think there I'm uh, very much aligned. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know what, for us, I want to comment a bit on, you know, the uncertainty which uh, Connor mentioned, and I agree that, you know, um, you know, we should, we cannot wait, right, really to keep longer. And I think so what is for us really important is that we do things um, land use related, but also non-land use related, where we have co-benefits. Yeah, for example, right. So we do mangrove. We do that in front of our sea-placed uh, uh, refinery. So we have kind of erosion protection, flooding protection, and these type of things. And I think uh, if you search for these uh, co-benefits, these are ways to you know convince your management that you can do things already now and. You know, carbon, if you will, is essentially a byproduct um, uh, of, of these benefits. And I think in the, in the agricultural supply chain, there are multiple um, areas where, where this could apply. Um, I think one more thing, you know, with, you know, if you think about palm, um, and maybe that is interest, different than in the cocoa supply chain, is that obviously most of our uh, suppliers and also we self, we are further down integrated. Yeah. So, um, you know, Nestle is, is buying essentially, you know, crude palm oil from us, but also refined products. And so if we go a bit further down, what is quite interesting from, if you look into GAR is that our split actually between the plantation and the rest of GAR is roughly 50, 50 in respect of emissions. And especially on the, on the, also on the non-agricultural side, um, there are a number of, you know, quick wins, I really want to call them, um, which would help to bring down the emissions of, of Nestle quite significantly. And, and especially at the moment with all the, um, you know, global political turmoil, I think there are many interesting 
uh, thoughts related to, you know, being not depending on uh, kind of on uh, fuel or gas deliveries from somewhere abroad, uh, um, uh, f fertilizer, right? And, and so you can also work with farmers uh, along the way. Composting is a big topic nowadays, right? So you can, you, because uh, fertilizer costs essentially tripled uh, in Indonesia in the past uh, few months. And, you know, that might break uh, smallholders' necks uh, if they face so high uh, fertilizer costs right now. And so how can you overcome you know, you do compost, you use kind of, uh, you know, liquids from your waste uh, uh, liquids and put them on the compost. And so you have double uh, savings. So I think these are the projects we, we need to look for besides stopping deforestation in the supply chain um, to, to overcome a bit of that un uncertainty in respect of, you know, uh, how is it measured? How is it accounted, uh, et cetera, right now? Thank you. Uh, the fertilizer point is a really interesting one. Hannah, let me come back to you because you mentioned nitrogen earlier and it's a key problem uh, and, a, and a key input. So are there further examples you've seen of turning resilience thinking into opportunity, bearing in mind the old cliche that we should never let a good crisis go to waste? That's a great point. Um, you know, the avoided nitrous oxide emissions or reductions is a really interesting one. I work primarily with farmers in the central U.S. who grow corn and soybeans. And for a lot of them, they are interested in finding ways to reduce their fertilizer use, both, both because it saves them immediate money on their bottom line. Um, it also has water quality benefits on site and downstream. And then additionally, as we've talked about excess nitrogen in the soil, if the conditions are right, the microbes will actually reduce that to N2O, nitrous oxide, which is a really intense greenhouse gas emission. So that's what I was referring to at the outset, which is there's already a lot of interest from farmers in dialing back their nitrogen application to the field. And we get all these benefits, including potentially one where farmers might be compensated for that reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. There are a few key challenges. The first is that many farmers don't have detailed receipts and prescriptions for where they're putting nitrogen on their field. Some do and some don't. And so that means we don't know what the delta is between we've intervened and we've paid you for this reduction versus nothing, right? The counterfactual. The other major challenge is one that also you find in carbon removals you find in methane reduction accounting as well, which is that nitrous oxide coming off of a field is incredibly variable across space and time. So what that means is you could go out and try to directly measure nitrous oxide coming out of the field. Um, you could try to model it. And both of those are probably going to give you fairly high uncertainty. And this is getting back to that issue of you have a very dynamic system. You have a di very dynamic flux from the soil. And you're trying to nest that within a quite rigid stationary framework. And there are ways of proceeding despite this. Connor's talked a lot about, we can't let this uncertainty trip us up. The challenge is finding ways to proceed despite that uncertainty without inadvertently relying on assumptions to get us there that are then rendered false or, you know, in a really bad case, it could even be that in some situations we actually see, you know, the wrong signal. We actually see increased greenhouse gas emissions, not because we're going out and intentionally doing what we think is wrong, but because we are still in a space where we have so much uncertainty that it's hard to have high confidence in the impact of those, those practices. So is the, is the word proxies quite important here in terms of what, what works out that we have some credible progress without 
without getting bogged down in too much of the individual detail. That's a really challenging area, as I understand it. Absolutely. And in addition to that, it's, it is continuous improvement and it's not saying this is good enough. We don't want to, you know, we feel like we have a good handle on what we're doing. Let's move ahead. It's that, but it's also, we have to continually check in. We have to understand what the guidance is saying. We have to adhere to it wherever possible when it exists, which it doesn't yet. So I think that's one of the big challenges. Um, and then also realize that just because we might have checked that box and adhered to those global standards, the, the guidance, it still might not be enough. We have to continually improve as we proceed. Yeah, that point about continuous improvement rather than striving for a particular set metric that needs to change over time is absolutely key. You know, we saw that back in the certification debate days and, and, a, and a vital point to make. Thank you. Well, we did say we weren't going to get bogged down in discussing the guidance, but we also said we were going to have to talk about it. And I see James Griffiths's question is on that and is, is the top voted question. So let's get into that now and then come back to some other areas after that. Um, Connor, perhaps I can come to you first. You spend your your day I mentioned a good part of your day trying to work out um, where we are on this so perhaps you can talk us through um, SBTI GHG protocol flag developments at the moment as you see them but let's try not to get too bogged down in it for the next 20 minutes or so if, if you can meet that challenge yeah no for sure I think generally so we've been involved in the process of, of developing the, the greenhouse gas protocol and sector guidance and in the developments around flags so we've been giving our feedback in terms of our needs and concerns through, throughout the process. I think both documents that are in draft and they will be released soon are a huge step forward in terms of consistency, in terms of how companies should be calculating emissions and removals in their supply chain and how companies in the land sector should be setting credible targets to reduce and remove emissions from their supply chain. So I think it's a, the, the, the people involved in developing those have done a really, really great job to get us to where we are today. There are obviously going to be some lingering concerns and some lingering different perspectives on certain points. Um, and we, we might be able to go into a, a few of those specifically if, if you want, but I think um, that there, there is a few elements that we think are completely, um, I understand how they arrived at their position on certain things because they want to have really high levels of integrity. They want to be, make sure that everything they do is, is completely scientifically grounded. But the pushback that we have is, is this pragmatic? Is this actually implementable in practice? Will this actually discourage action in some cases because the requirements for monitoring, et cetera, are just too much um, for us in the future to, to really take on this? Um, so yeah, I'm happy to go into specifics, but I'll maybe stop there as a, as a starting point. And I don't know, Tillman, if you want to add into that. Uh, I'm sure you might, Tillman. I mean, I think the old cliche is, uh, yes, another one, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and i imagine that's uh, that's top of your agenda at the moment tillman sure so apparently now we're going a bit into into that that direction but happy to to share my kind of two three uh, concerns really underline the importance of of pragmatism in this one um one thing i think also somebody raised in the q a is is the question of the land boundary right particularly in a very integrated smallholder model. I mean, we are buying most of our cocoa from smallholders in West Africa. And there the land use dynamics are very, very, you know, are very high, they're very volatile, et cetera. So um, yet the greenhouse gas protocol seems to really want us to, you know, focus on the farm boundaries. Whereas in order to really, for example, fight deforestation, it might be what's needed on the ground might be to really go and, you know, protect that forest, which is over there. 
And we know it's under threat of being converted to cocoa, or even maybe it has been in the past converted to cocoa and is now fellow land. But in the science-based target, as we currently understand it, we cannot, we basically, we are not, um, you know, we, know, we don't get any, any kind of acknowledgement for that. We cannot report it. So when we think that there is some level for, where pragmatism would, would be very, very helpful. Um, another element is in traceability. Again, traceability is, is important, but it's a tool. It's not yet impact, right? And, um, and in money supply chains, it will be very, very hard to get to go to full trans, uh, traceability. Yet again, greenhouse gas protocol in the current form, um, I think is sometimes a bit challenging in that it, it puts a lot of kind of focus on traceability and makes that a, you know, a key requirement. Whereas I think sometimes we can't afford again, for the benefit of the climate to, you know, spend another five years in trying to collect all those data and kind of to restructure the supply chain to make it, you know, fix and fully traceable. We have to be able to start today and be able to, again, account for the benefits of what we're doing. And in our case, right, we know that we're sourcing from Ivory Coast, we know we're sourcing from Ghana, not maybe specifically from this and this farmer, but to work on this kind of supply chain model um, is, I think, very helpful. And again, also, if you're comparing that to companies which are, which are, you know, not looking so much at insetting, but you do offsetting as a measure. I think that's where, you know, the level of pragmatism in saying we are, you know, we account only for everything that is in Ivorian cocoa farming is, you know, you have a very high, I think, integrity. Whereas if you would say, we, you know, we go offset in, in entirely different, different areas, which is, you know, in some industries is still the benchmark. And the last element is, is on permanence, right? So, I mean, yes, we need to make sure that if you're doing removals, they, they stay in place. And the carbon markets have issued carbon credits for removals, so for, for tree planting for a decade or more. So there are solutions out there. Yet again, in Greenhouse Gas Protocol, we open, a, we open that discussion again, and we're speaking about 100 years or almost eternal kind of monitoring of removals, um, which just makes it very, very, very inattractive for companies like us to actually you know, build our strategy on, the, on that basis. So, so those are some of the, the challenges I currently see. I presume the rules won't be set in stone and can be changed over time. But we also know once rules get set, it can be very difficult to change them, uh, given the process that everybody went through to get there. So let's, let's hope for that flexibility. This term supply shed, um, I feel like I missed a meeting uh, because I've only just started hearing about it. But at our Future of Food conference in Minneapolis two weeks ago, that was one of the top phrases on the agenda. Tillman, just clarify for us as briefly as you can, what do we mean by a supply shed? You know, we hear about landscapes, we hear about jurisdictions, now, we're, now we have supply sheds. What is that? You, you missed 20 meetings probably, at least. Um, well, a supply shed, um, I hope I'm, I'm, I've never tried to define it. But anyways, so essentially it's supply shed is the level at which you kind of um, mass balance. So you would basically say, you know, if a supply shed within that, you can, you can basically balance out your physical supply and your, let's say, your carbon benefit. Um, so basically you would say it's almost like, it's almost, it's tricky to define it. <laughs> Maybe help me out if you want, but essentially you're turning around. That's what I say. It's the unit at which you're doing the mass balance. So basically it allows us to then say, well, we don't know exactly for this farmer in, if we're really physically sourcing from this farmer, but if we say, for example, Ivory Coast is our supply shed, we can basically say we're sourcing in, in Ivory Coast from, let's say, a thousand farmers. It's more like a hundred thousand farmers. And then it doesn't, it's not so important that we're, when we're doing agroforestry, it's exactly with those physical hundred thousand farmers that work with us. We can work with any and then buy enough mass balance at, within our supply shed, right? So, and that obviously has a huge effect if I put that, if I put a supply shed at the level of a country of a kind of region or even of one cooperative, it allows you to take, go to action very, very quickly and be able to claim it and not to worry too much about, is this farmer now in, my, in this year in my supply shed? Might it maybe, maybe drop next year? 
uh, do I have full traceability? So it's a very pragmatic approach, in my view, to really, you know, spark and, and, and kickstart actually um, climate action today. That's, that's very helpful. Hannah, would you like to add anything to that? No, I actually think that was a great definition. Well done, Tillman. Excellent. Well, on the on the guidance side, Gertz, is there anything you want to, to add? I know a lot's been said, but I want to give you a chance to comment on that, given it's our top question on the on the webinar. Yeah, you know, I think what is important on the guidance is that it's, uh, you know, it needs to be smallholder friendly, right? I, th I think I think bigger companies will be able to, you know, manage technical difficulties and have enough resources to do so. I think smallholder friendliness is is important. Um, I think what is also for, for me important, I think, you know, if we come back to the deforestation, I think there is a lot of discussion, obviously, around deforestation in the supply chains. But we know that many smallholders, I hope, Tillman, you would agree, right? Many smallholders in agroforestry systems, they are absorbed at the moment already, right? That is not, that is very difficult to measure, right? And so, but I know there are some couple of organizations, universities, and some startups coming up to try to, to measure um, kind of absorption in really a large scale, right? And so then the question is, how can we as supply chain actors can make that type of information available to the smallholders or, you know, we apply as Tillman uh, proposed a supply shed approach to these smallholders so that not each and every individual has to measure all his trees um, uh, within, you know, his two hectare plot, yeah, on, on, a, on an annual basis. I, I think th these are solutions where we need to look at, um, yeah, because, because they can not uh, manage the uncertainty and also not the, the ever-changing uh, rules, right? Um, so that would be my... Uh, Thank you. Yes, uh, we must never forget the smallholders. Um, Hannah, any comments you might have on the on the guidance bit? I know we've covered a bit of it, but I don't know that there's always more to say. I imagine. No, I mean it, you could spend hours on it, and so I think we've covered it really well. I do want to just quickly touch on the smallholders piece that has been coming up. In addition to you know making sure that the information is accessible and the value proposition is made clear to farmers, I think it's really important that there's bi-directional information exchange with farmers and ranchers and landowners. What I mean by that is there is so much variability and complexity when it comes to putting these interventions on the ground. Every farm is an island unto itself in many ways. We need to engage the experts on their farms and their ranches and their lands to make sure that those practices um, create the directional change in greenhouse gases that we care about. And I think the a one-size-fits-all approach, we all know that doesn't work intuitively, but what does it actually mean to operationalize that type of philosophy on the ground? And it means that you have to engage landowners, you need to engage their information, and you need to handle it with care to make sure that whatever intervention you do design is culturally appropriate, leverages their expertise, and then also has the climate and hopefully biodiversity and other well-being benefits that we all care about. Yeah, some tough challenges there, uh, and clearly a need for diversification of, uh, of expert inputs into understanding, particularly the cultural side, because as we all know, behavioural change um, uh, is, is the, and, and culture is the, the key aspect of actually getting anything done. Uh, so a uh, question here from Matthew Reddy. Thank you, Matthew. Can you share some insights on your internal carbon prices? How are they set? How are they used in impacting on scope three? So uh, a relevant question, I think. Who wants to go first? I guess, uh, Connor, can I turn to you first? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Happy to. Um, so 
So we have what's called an implicit carbon price. So we're getting all of these great proposals of, for projects from all of our partners for different crops in different parts of the world. We know what the likely planned benefits of these projects are, and we know what the, the total project investment is and the Nestle contribution to these projects is. So we can quite quickly calculate the, the kind of the cost per ton of carbon for these projects. So we can quite quickly see across different project types in different parts of the world, what's the cost per ton. And we can use that information to really focus our investment as much as possible to get the, the biggest return for, for our money. But we obviously, we can't just look at carbon. There's many other things that we have to consider. If it's in our scope one and two, it's more expensive, but we have to do it. Logistics cost a bit more, but we can't forget about it. So yeah, we have this information in terms of what's the, the cost per ton of carbon based on what it actually costs us to reduce one ton at different parts of our supply chain. And that's the most useful tool for us in communicating internally that um, this comes at a cost, and 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 one of the strongest messages that we can get from this is: is there ways that we can change our business models or the products that we offer or these kind of things to avoid the need to invest all of this additional money in some of our supply chains? Um, and it really makes the case for that transformation side. So it's 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 an it's an avoided cost if we can move some of our portfolios away from certain high emissions intense ingredients to lower emissions intense ones. Thank you. Uh, further comments, Tillman. Do you have an internal carbon price? So, is there a risk of, uh, of you know aiming towards one narrow target too much? I mean, there have been comments around net zero on this basis. What are your views? Well, on the carbon price, we're using it similar to to Nestle. I think there is a lot of um, at least theoretical potential for carbon prices to you know really integrate um, into climate into decision making at in sourcing for example but i do believe that very very few companies if any in our space have have you know mastered that piece yet but i think there's a lot of potential to you know internally again integrate it maybe roll on the cost also to do different businesses and to you know it's a, it's a very important concept and interesting concept yet i think in terms of implementation more at it's, it's in this infancy that than than some people might think microsoft by the way is interesting is an interesting example outside our sector um you, you ask whether there's a focus, maybe just quickly, I think that you said, is there a focus too much on, on, on climate on a, as a single metric? Is that what you, what you ask for, Toby? Um, I think yeah. on that front, possibly, right? But we also have to keep in mind that we're all, you know, big structures such as Barricada Bogar and, and Neste, we all, you know, it's, we, we are working along, we have to kind of, in order to manage the speech structures, we have to kind of simplify things and slice and dice. And in that sense, I think carbon, also for the reason of the co-benefits, as, as Götz pointed out, is, is a fairly good proxy, if you will, for, you know, improving your, your company, you know, making your company more environmental friendly, hope, hopefully also more, more kind of pro-social. So I think it is, yes, there is in the market right now, a lot of focus on net zero and on climate as one of the most important, if not the single most important metric um, but I think if, you know, a couple of safeguards, basically making sure that you don't do any harm on, on certain elements are taken into account, I think it is very powerful. It really drives, again, scientific target has really sparked climate action all across the industry. It has been super powerful. So I think there, I don't think it's a huge risk as if you're taking into account that, you know, there, we need to make sure that sometimes, often there are co-benefits, sometimes there's risks to, to kind of, you know, be, do something good for the climate, bad for biodiversity. So we, we shouldn't, you know, have a too narrow, narrow, narrow of, a, of, a, of a view. But by and large, I think it's very, very powerful, this, this strong focus on climate right now. Yeah, it certainly seems to focus people's minds. And then we just have to be mindful of potential unintended consequences. 
<coughs> I'm conscious we've got lots of questions and not much time, but Gertz and Hannah, if you wanted to comment on this point, uh, by all means, briefly. Gertz, anything you want to add on that? You know, I think, I think well, we have no carbon price yet uh, decided, um, which is it's very high on our topic. What we have done, and I think that's something I would obviously recommend every company to do, is, is to develop essentially a cost curve, what your emission abatement options are. And then similar as uh, Connor said, you know, you go from the left to the right and work from the low cost to the high cost options. Um, I, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's very, it's a very, at the moment when in, in the country where we are operating, we are missing still a little bit from the, you know, push, uh, to be honest, right? So it's not like in Europe with, very high uh, targets and, and given targets for certain sectors. And so, you know, we in our current investment decisions want to have a carbon price to compare a business as usual technology with a carbon friendly technology. And so it's very important to plug in a carbon price. And so I think for every organization, it's, it's very important to rather sooner than later define a carbon price for the moment to be reviewed on a regular basis. Uh, otherwise, otherwise it, there is a big risk you will get stuck in you know, kind of business as usual technologies. Okay, thank you. Uh, Hannah, I know a lot's been said, but we could also spend two days on this question. Anything you want to add briefly before we move on? No, just that in the United States, the Security and Exchange Commission right now is proposing rules that could require disclosure of internal prices on carbon. Um, and it's something that we are generally for. When companies have internal prices on carbon, it makes them more prepared to, to you know, engage on the global stage and potential carbon markets. So we are in favor of it as a nature conservancy. We don't have our own internal price on carbon, but it is something that we encourage all of our corporate stakeholders and partners to do. Thank you. Uh, well, our next most popular question from Srijit. Thank you, Srijit Bothakur. Um, really interesting, this one. Offsetting versus insetting. When it comes to offsetting in voluntary carbon markets, farmers are imagined to get extra revenue. When it comes to insetting, do farmers also get a carbon-based revenue or a premium on prices? Or you could add to that longer-term contracts, I suppose, or a mix. Um, what, what, who wants to take that one on to start with? Sure, happy to. Um... Well, quick, quick clarification, right? That's also clear with the new, um, new greenhouse gas um, protocol. When we're doing it in farming, you have basically two options. You do insetting and offsetting, you can't do both, right? You cannot generate a credit, sell it as an offset, and at the same time, claim it as, in, in, as an inset as a scope three reduction, just to be very clear on that. Well, and then I think it's not to, you know, in short, there's no kind of theoretical guidance as to insetting has to pay a certain price to farmers, right? And also, if you're looking at, for example, SustainCert, which is a certifier for insets that we have also piloted, they don't talk about, they talk about causality. So as a company, no matter what your approach is, if you can show that you have cost and difference on the ground and effect on the ground through, it could be, you know, certification, it could be, as you say, more, you know, preferential sourcing terms, and you can show that this has had an effect on, on, local, on local activities, you can claim it. So there doesn't necessarily have to be a flow of money. However, I mean, I alluded to this very briefly when I talked before, um, our PS system, our payment for ecosystem services, right, is for us a, a primary approach that we are, we are using right now, we're trying out right now in order to make sure that the economics for the farmer work out because that's what we have to do. The farmer is an own independent economic um, entity who makes, you know, has his own business model and that has to work. So we cannot force the farmer into something. We have to make it attractive for him. And again, for us, uh, cash payment is part of the, is part of the mix that we are, we believe in. And um, it has to be staged, right. In order to assure, assure permanence. I've talked about this before, but that would be my, my answer. 
Thank you. We don't need all of you to answer every question because there's lots of great questions, but I do want to give you the opportunity to comment on this one if you'd like to. Anyone? Yeah, just a quick one from me. I think there's there's competition now for farmers. Farmers can choose to sell the benefits on farm as offsets or they can choose to bundle those benefits with the ingredients and sell them along the supply chain. So there is no requirement for us to pay farmers for reductions they achieve in our supply chain necessarily, but there is because they have an option. They have either I sell it externally or I sell it along the supply chain. So it's not required, but it's always, it's pretty much always present in most of our programs. Thank you. Other comments? Hannah, anything you want to add, Gert? No? Maybe just briefly, because I would be more on the selling side, actually, than on the, on the buying side. I think, I think what is really important that some of the, especially the smaller players, I think they are actually not yet aware about their emissions. Yeah? And so essentially even a smallholder for sure has emissions, right? Historic land use change, fertilizer use. And also, you know, it depends on how far we go, but also this person at some stage or a small company needs to decide uh, on, you know, how to stage things. And, uh, you know, when, when are you open for insetting by, you know, uh, or programs or offsetting, you know, sales, if you will, or at what stage are you going to internalize your actions and, and you know, go to the supply chain and position yourself as kind of a net zero player. Uh, I, I think these are quite some important decisions for uh, uh, supplying companies uh, to make at what stage they want to play at what position in the market. Thank you. And I guess, Hannah, for a brief commentary from you, um, how many farmers in your experience understand what the options are that have been laid out here and, and what are the challenges in, in helping them do so? And in fact, how can we better do so? If you can do that briefly, <laughs> that'd be great. A lot of the farmers that we work with in the U.S. who have enrolled in these programs are doing so because they're curious. There's so much noise. They want experiential learning. Um, the farmers who are interested in it for economic purposes are usually waiting, which is a challenge because they know there's a potential opportunity cost if they think they could get more money down the road. And that undermines everyone's objectives in this space. Uh, there is, again, it's getting back to this balance of how do we make something general enough so that it's understandable, but specific enough so that it's actionable to a farmer, especially when those details shift over time. So I always tell farmers, put your farmers and ranchers, put your business cap on, <laughs> you know, if you need to get legal counsel, be really careful when you're proceeding because there's a lot of opportunity, but there's also considerable risk. I think the points that have already been made, which is it's, I think, ultimately going to be increased competition for farmers and those people who are approaching farmers and trying to enroll them in either offsetting or insetting programs are going to have to really sharpen their business case and be incredibly communicative. And after a farmer sign, a rancher signs a contract, continuing to work with them. So it's not just a one-time signature and gone. It's going to be an ongoing relationship. So yeah, I agree with everything that everyone has said. Um, and just again, that emphasis on the challenge of being both general and specific is something that comes up again and again in this space. Thank you. It feels like we should do a whole separate webinar on understanding farmer risks and how you overcome them, educate. Well, educate is sort of the wrong term, isn't it? Help understand pathways uh, for, for the right action by them, because that, that clearly is something that's vital. We've got another time for a couple of great questions here. Um, Carlos Saviani, thank you for yours. In the planting of trees for carbon capturing for cocoa, um, milk, beef, other, any other farm product, can they be cut down and sold? If so, what happens to the carbon balance? Uh, and that couldn't be allocated to other farm products, could it? I mean, that is a good point. As, as you've all said, land use is dynamic and changes over time, and trees take a very long time to grow. Um, any thoughts on that? 
Uh, anyone want to volunteer? I can jump in initially. So I think this is one of the key topics that the greenhouse gas protocol is wrestling with, which we call permanence. If you plant, you, you do agroforestry, and as Tillman said, there has to be kind of um, income diversification. And quite often that means that they can chop down that tree and use it either themselves or, or sell the timber. That's a form of income diversification, but that removes the permanence of that carbon being sequestered. So it's it's you have to consider both. Um, and yeah, the idea, you have to structure your program so you, you achieve both. You achieve more carbon being sequestered permanently, but you also achieve the, the goals of that farmer, which might be they want to get additional fruit crops from certain trees or they want to chop down certain trees every now and then to use it as, as firewood or to sell it on, on the markets. But it, once you chop down that tree, that carbon is no longer stored and you would have to, to, to report that as a reversal, as emissions going back into the atmosphere. So it's... Yeah, it's, it's a complicated uh, perspective of we want to keep this carbon permanent, but we also have to recognize that not all trees are going to be left in the ground and the farmer has the right to chop down a couple of trees if they, if they choose to. Absolutely. Yeah, briefly, if you wouldn't mind. You know, again, the, I think the carbon market has, has some answers here. I think, you know, very right to what you said. And often those timber trees are also are great in carbon, right? Fruit trees, often they stand, but they don't have as much carbon. Um, I was just going to say, even if you cut them down and, you know, if you replace them and you correct for that factor by something that, that in the carbon market is called long-term average, right? So in a rotational forestry system, you know, a tree is growing, it's cut down and it's regrown. Or if you kind of change the business case for the farmer, that's interesting for him to, even after one harvesting period, regrow the timber and, you know, make that really an intrinsic part of his business model, an integrated part of his business model, then you can account for it also in accounting terms, you basically account up for you know, the full long-term average, which is maybe two-thirds or so of the, of the maximum that you're achieving in the field. And if you're doing it this way, sign up the farmer to a kind of farmer management, you know, a tree, basically, forestry management plan on his farm, and that farmer sticks to it, harvests it as planned, prunes it and thins it as planned, but then replants it, and you take that into account in your carbon model, I don't think there's a problem, right? The problem is then if it totally drops again the timber business model. But I think in very in many cases we see an insetting is actually it's a good approach. It makes sense from an economic perspective, balanced with a with a climate perspective. Great, thank you. Time for perhaps one more question, which perhaps I'll put to you, Hannah. Tell me if if you feel this is better for somebody else, and then we'll do a quick round the room as to what you guys would like to see happen from here. Um, Sajib's question. Uh, Current understanding is that removals from conservation land would not count against removals from a company's carbon inventory or in meeting targets. What's the insight on this? Uh, Hannah, do you have some insight for us on that? Actually, a good follow-up question from what was just discussed, because there is just a lot of issues with removals, right? So, and, and I think the permanence issue is probably the one that's front and center, and it's probably why there hasn't been a way to integrate those with things like science-based targets. Um, and it's another reason why we should also make sure that we keep reductions, uh, you know, front and center, because a reduction is permanent by nature. The moment that nitrous oxide or methane is not emitted, it's permanent and it can't be reversed, whereas removals can be. And, and that doesn't mean that removals aren't going to be legitimate, but it does mean that we have to have really wide safeguards and that can dilute the actual sort of quantified credit or asset or outcome that, that we're seeing. So it's a great question. I don't think we're there yet, but it's an important distinction to make between reductions and removals. Thank you. So just briefly, before I give the final word to Connor, what's your one key takeaway from this that you'd like the audience to remember or the one thing you'd like to see happen next? Hannah, let's stick with you again, go to Gertz, then Tillman, and then Connor, you can have the final word. And if we can all keep it pretty short, that'd be great. 
there is a lot of uncertainty in this space. It doesn't mean we can't proceed, but it does mean we need to take care. And just because guidance is forthcoming, meeting that still might not be enough. We need to be continually improving while we're proceeding on climate action. Thank you, Gertz. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, I think searching for or looking for co-benefits is very critical. Um, you need a balance between removal and um, reduction. In my view, um, many reductions are quick wins. Um, removals take a bit longer time. Um, so don't be overly too excited about removals. Okay, thank you. Tillman. <laughs> All the, I think, similar lines. So we have to be pragmatic. So let's move even if the rules are not fully clear yet. And we have to use, we as a professional of sustainability and climate people, we have to use our own, I think, professional judgment and integrity. I think that's a very important part right now. Move ahead, but knowing that also nature is part of the solution. It's maybe like, you know, 30% or so by 2050, but it's not all, right? So also for the reason that Hannah pointed out, it, it can't be all. So let's not forget decarbonization and really, you know, getting, get, reducing fossil fuel use as much as possible. Absolutely. I sometimes feel as if agriculture is getting way more of the blame than it should do compared to leaking gas wells and fossil fuel use. Anyway, Connor, over to you for the final word. Um, what would you like to see happen next as a result of this and ongoing work? Yeah, no, I think I think um, the main message that people should act um, and act now, even though there is some uncertainty, I would definitely call out to other actors that haven't maybe been very much involved in so far in these kind of developments on greenhouse gas protocol and flag. I'd call for you to get involved in those discussions. And there's going to be drafts released soon. There's going to be piloting happening soon. So definitely get involved in the discussion. And let's, let's, let's get to a set of rules that work for us, that work for our suppliers, that work for our farmers, that deliver the action that's needed, but deliver it credibly and, and with high integrity. Thanks so much to the panel. Good luck in the work you're doing. Innovation Forum is here to support your journey and, the, and you and the audience. Virtual round of applause for the panel. And we shall see you all very soon. Thank you so much for your time and contributions. <laughs>